What a beautiful song and a reminder of the hope that we have to one day see our Lord's face, to stand before Him and to be with Him forevermore. It's one of those joys and hopes that we have. It's important to say that the word hope in the Bible is not something that, like we talk in the world about, I hope the Cubs win the World Series or something like that. It's not that kind of hope, is it? It's an expectation that something will happen. A joyous remembrance of the promise of God that something will happen. This morning, as we gather together again, what a blessing that is. We are back in 1 Thessalonians, and we just kind of think about what we've seen in this letter. We'd be reminded that it's Paul's earliest letter. He wrote it to this church that is a newborn congregation, a young congregation. He had been there just a few weeks. The church had begun. He had been an instrumental part in its founding, and he has to leave town. We've spoken about the circumstances under which he had to leave many times. Uh, There was great persecution. There was an uprising. The the Jewish leaders were unhappy that so many had left the synagogue and joined with Paul and the church. And so they began a riot. Jason is arrested and all kinds of chaos ensues. And we think that likely the Politarch said, if you want Jason released from jail or you want no further persecution or at least arrest, then Paul's got to go. And so Paul likely just said, "I'll, I'll go. It's best for the church. I've got other places I need to go anyway, and I'll come back soon. The problem is, as Paul traveled, he wasn't able to get back. Paul had wanted desperately to get back, and he speaks about that. He says, don't think that I don't desire to be back with you. Does a mother not love her baby? Does a mother not want to get back to her baby? Does a father not care about his children? I want to get back to you. I've been hindered by Satan from returning. Know that I care very much. And as soon as he had opportunity, Paul sent Timothy back. And Timothy goes and Uh, meets with the church and stays there we don't know how long maybe a day or two maybe a week and he brings Paul back a report and Paul hears of what's going on in the church there's a lot of good isn't there this is a church that is doing amazing things they're growing there are pagans entering the church when Paul left it was uh, a few Jewish converts and some God-fearing Greeks now there are pagans who have entered the church Paul says that you turn from idols to the living and true God we looked at that last Sunday What's interesting is Paul encounters, if you will, a church that has been evangelizing. Uh, Evangelized Thessalonica. They had evangelized Macedonia. They even evangelized Achaia, the neighboring region. They had been busy. Paul says it's as if we have no work to do. You've done it for us. You've been evangelizing on our behalf. There's nothing left for us to do. You love one another and you love the Lord. Paul says this is a good report. You're dedicated. You're serious. You love the Lord. You love one another. These things are good things, but there's also some issues. We have looked in this fourth chapter at some of those issues. The first one is sexual immorality. Paul says there's a real danger that you might stumble back into some of those pagan practices. Guard against that. Then we looked a couple of weeks ago at uh, brotherly love. He says, I don't need to say anything to you on this. You all do love one another, but understand the importance of loving one another. It's a testimony to the outside world. And all of that because you serve the living and true God. We looked at that last Sunday. We kind of traveled back to chapter 1 to look at that. So as we think about all this together, Paul is coming to this point where there's a new question. A question the church brought up, a, a, a topic they didn't fully understand. They, Paul must have spoken about the Lord's appearing or parousia, his return. He must have spoken about this, but they didn't fully understand it. They had some questions about it. For one thing, they probably thought Christ is returning very soon. It's imminent, right? We know that. It's imminent. It's always could happen at any time. But they read that as immediate. 
he's coming back tomorrow or the next day. And this has produced a lot of the problems you see in the church. Like, do I really need to work? Do I really need to go to work in the morning if Christ is coming back? How should I spend my time? What should I do? These are the sorts of questions that were emerging in the church. But what about those Christians that have died since Paul left? We thought the Lord would preserve them so that when he returned, they would meet with him in the air. And now they've died. What does that mean? So we're going to look at that today. I want us to look once more at the word before we launch into it. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. Amen. I think you can imagine Paul might have said something very similar to that. He might have said something about we who are alive and remain until the Lord's coming will be called up, caught up, to meet Him in the air. And they took from that wording that Paul meant, we who are true believers will remain until the day He returns. In fact, the way Paul words that here, it almost sounds like he has an expectation that he will be alive when Christ returns. And so, my friends, you can understand there might have been a point of confusion. So as you look at this text this morning, we want to look at two points. First of all, the issue at hand. And second of all, the source of hope. So as we begin to think about this, I want to call to your memory our last two Sunday morning sermons. I'm going to ask you to kind of remember them and kind of hold them in your memory because they're important to what Paul's talking about today. So if you remember, two weeks ago we looked at the idea of brotherly love. And one of Paul's arguments there was that you present a testimony to those outside, to the others, as Paul would say. You present a testimony by your love, one to the other, to the outside world, to those outside of Christ. Remember that. And second of all, last week we looked at the living and true God. And Paul says what? You turned away from idols toward God, to the living and true God. But then look what he says. You want to turn back to verse 10 of chapter 1. You don't just turn away from idols toward God. You're also doing something else, Paul says. You're waiting for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. In other words, Paul, even there, is tying in, you're turning from idols toward God to the return of Christ. It's instrumental in Paul's thinking that as Christians, we are waiting for that day when Christ returns. So we need to think about those two things because they play into his argument today. So Paul, in his approach to the Thessalonians, has argued strongly Christ will vindicate His people. He will return from heaven. He will be back one day soon to vindicate His people. Now, this is particularly important to the church at Thessalonica. Why? They're persecuted. They've been imprisoned. They're being beaten. They're being oppressed. They're in a difficult situation. Their hope is that their king will one day return and put to shame the forces of the world that have opposed them. My friends, wherever the church is persecuted in the world today, this is their hope. How do you get through tomorrow knowing that you go to church and it might be burnt down while you're in it? 
This happens often around the world, doesn't it? In places in Africa and other places. What's your hope? That even if that happens, my king reigns. He reigns above the forces of this world. He reigns above every evil that opposes his work and ultimately will be frustrated because they will fail. My hope is in my king who is going to return victorious one day. The victory is already won. The world just can't see it yet. But I put my hope in the fact that he is returning in victory. And my friends, the Thessalonian believers put their hope in the same. Whatever happens in the world today or tomorrow, I have a hope that transcends any of those things because my king is returning. He'll be back and he will be victorious. And there will be none who fail to drop a knee, drop to a knee when Christ returns. He is the king of all, the Lord of all, glorious and victorious. So this is very important. The comfort in that is obvious, isn't it? If you're being beaten because you won't bow a knee to Caesar... It has to be somewhere in your mind, wait till my king shows up. Wait till he returns. Then you'll be bowing before him. So my friends, they were enduring great trials and persecution. The thought of Christ's return in vindicating power was an encouragement to them all as it should be to us. We should be looking forward to Christ's return. But the issue of the imminent return of Christ, and and the Bible presents it that way, right? That it's imminent, it's always imminent. It had become immediate somehow. Somehow they had misread it to say, he, he has to be coming today or tomorrow. If you had said to them that we would be meeting 2,000 years later here this morning, they would have been boggled at that idea. And we're not sure how much Paul understood of this, but Paul knows that they've misunderstood him. They've taken it that Christ must be coming back in the next day or two or three or four, and somehow in all of this, they've gotten the idea that Christians wouldn't die before he came back. But Paul says, as he gets this report from Timothy of the misunderstanding and the questions that are there, there's been confusion, and Paul wants to address that confusion. And I think we need to think about it as well. Because we say Christ's return is imminent. He could come back tomorrow, or the next day, or a week from now, or a year from now, or a decade from now, or a thousand years from now. It could be any time. Now, there are things that would make us think it's getting nearer and nearer all the time. But imminent doesn't mean immediate. It doesn't mean he's coming back tomorrow. He might. And so the Bible tells us to always be ready. Don't be caught off guard like the servants who were not ready when their master returned. Don't be like the, uh, the maids who were not ready when the bridegroom returned. All these pictures that were given of being prepared, being waiting, being found ready when our master returns. It brings up a question. We didn't expect any of our brothers or sisters to die. Now, I'm talking about brothers or sisters in the faith. But these may also be your literal brother, your literal sister, your mother, your father, your grandmother, grandfather, your child. This could be somebody very dear to you, and you're asking the question, what becomes of them? What is their fate? Did God not preserve them? Are they not a part of the people of God? Or are they a part who will be somehow disadvantaged in all of this? How are we to understand this? This is not an academic or theoretical question, is it? It's a practical question. What becomes of the beloved people that we've lost in the month or two since Paul's been here? What is their fate? What will become of them? Do they miss out? Now, there's a lot of interpretations 
of what the issue is here. Some say, well, what is going on here is there's simply a question of priority. Will the dead in Christ be under a lesser glory? Will they uh, maybe meet Him in the air, but they will do it at a later time, or there'll be some uh, loss of some glory for them? I'm with the people who don't think that's at all what's going on here. It seems too urgent if you look at Paul's wording. Think about for a moment what Paul is saying. There is some issue so serious in the church at Thessalonica that it's leading to believers grieving. Now that word lupeo means not just to grieve but to be distressed. They are distressed. So this is portrayed as serious. What is happening in Thessalonica is serious. Believers are distressed. And their level of distress is so great, so serious, that the outside world is seeing them as looking very much like pagans. Paul says you're beginning to look like those outside the church who have no hope. Now that's a pretty serious charge. There must be something more serious than just order of glory here. It would seem if they have gone to the point where they are like, Paul says, the rest, meaning the outside world, the pagans, however you want to word that, it means Paul's saying they have no hope. He says you're beginning to act like those who have no hope. You have no hope at all. This word elpis, it means expectation. You've lost any hope of expectation. You're beginning to act like the outside world who when they see their beloved die, think that's the end. You're acting like that. Well, that seems a lot more serious than simply saying are they going to be in some delayed process of glorification. It sounds like the problem is they've begun to question whether there'll be any glory for those who have died at all. Well, have they completely missed out? Was the promise only for those who lived until Christ came back? Now, maybe there is some preacher preaching this. Maybe some Gnostic persons come into the church and preach this. We don't know. But somehow, the message has gotten out that there may be no hope for those who have died before Christ returns. So Paul has to answer this confusion. Because it's making believers look as though they are as hopeless as the pagans in Thessalonica. That doesn't work, does it? The church cannot be a source of a lack of hope. We have to be a source of hope. And so, my friends, there is more, there's something more serious going on than just simply a debate of the order of the glory of Christ's return. There seems to be a distress that ensues from, worried that, from worrying that your loved ones have missed out altogether. Now, if you just put yourself in that position, you'll understand how stressful this would have been, how this could be distressing. And so, Paul has to answer it. Now, why does it matter if we're a people of hope? Well, for one thing, we're called to be a people of hope. We are called to be a people of expectation who believe the promises of God. A people called to, in a very real sense, live in hope before the face of God. And that means it doesn't matter where you are. You can live in the deepest forest on earth where there's no one around to see you. You are still called to be a person of hope. You can live in the middle of the desert by yourself. You are still called to live out, in a real sense, hopeful lives. So it's got to be real. It's got to be genuine. But Paul says there is an extra layer here because we're also called to be a people of testimony. A people of testimony. Again, I ask you to refer back to the previous couple of sermons. One of the reasons Paul cares so much about us being a people who love one another is it provides a testimony to the outside world. Jesus said it too, didn't he? They'll know that you're mine by this, that you love one another as I have loved you. So there has to be a testimony, and in the same way, we have a testimony in our hopefulness. Paul says, I'm hearing that your funerals look like the pagan world's funerals. Now, we cry at funerals. 
We're sad to lose people we love. But Paul says we don't weep and mourn as those who have no hope. That there's nothing beyond that casket or beyond that urn. There is something beyond that. There is a glory beyond that. There is a living in the presence of Almighty God beyond that. Paul says you need to act like the people who actually believe that. And so Paul has to answer this question. If they are a people without hope, we come to our second point. What is the source of hope? The antidote to hopelessness is hope. If you have hopelessness or a lack of expectation, you need to have something that you expect to happen. So what is the source of that expectation? Well, Paul wants to remember that it's Jesus Christ. Only in Christ. Notice that Paul does not lessen the importance of Christ's return. His appearing, he doesn't lessen it. You could say, oh no, they've misunderstood me. They've misunderstood about the return of Christ. They've misunderstood about the order it'll take place in. They've misunderstood so many things. I need to de-emphasize this. That's not what Paul does. Paul in this letter over and over again talks about Christ's appearing. It's found throughout every chapter, almost every few verses he mentions something about it. As we saw last Sunday, you turn from idols to the, the living and true God and you're waiting for Christ, His Son's return from heaven. So Paul doesn't de-emphasize it. He says we need to understand it rightly. We need to understand it rightly. So they don't need a different hope. They just need to understand the hope that they've been given in Christ. And Paul brings that to them by talking about Christ and His return. At Christ's return, the dead in Christ shall not miss out. If you somehow thought that or misunderstood it, that is not going to happen. The saints who have died before Christ's return, they're not going to miss out. You need to have this understanding and expectation. There's no need to despair. There's nothing lost here. There's an expectation that there will be gain. There will be glory. At Christ's return, the dead in Christ will rise first. Will rise first. In fact, not only are they not in some lesser position, they go first. Paul says, the dead in Christ shall rise first. Now, he says, we don't miss out either. They rise first and then we rise. Now that word for caught up is harapazo. And it's interesting because this is an important word here, right? People talk about the rapture and, they, and you'll even hear some people say, well, I don't buy into that whole rapture thing. Well, the word's right there in the scriptures, right? So you have to have some accounting for what it means. Harpazo means to be caught up or, or whisked away. It's actually used usually in military terms. If there was a unit that was stranded, they would come in and whisk them away. You can imagine being a, in, a, in a flood and somebody has to come in and rescue you. They, they literally grab you and pull you into a boat and save you, rescue you. That's the sense here. Christ is coming back and he's going to catch up or whisk away his people. Now the question is, what does it mean? And we don't have time to do all of this today. We're going to look at, at it over the next three or four weeks, these sections here on Christ's return. But there's two main ways of looking at it. First of all, and you all have heard both of them many times, Christ is going to come back, call His people into the sky, and then return to heaven and wait out this period of tribulation. And the other idea is that Christ is going to call His people into the air to greet Him as He returns to the earth in power, glory, and vindicating his people. Now, I'll go ahead and give you the cliff notes. I think Paul in this passage clearly sides with the second one. But we'll look at why next Sunday. The point is this. Paul says, wait for this moment where Christ comes back and vindicates his people, comes back in power and glory, and in a way that all people know. That's another part of the question we'll see next week. 
uh, a secret rapture versus an open, clear rapture. There's voices of archangels and trumpets of God uh, blaring here. And Paul immediately goes into the consequences for non-believers. And so we'll look at it next Sunday. But, but think about this this week. Be reading about it. Paul says, when it comes, Christ comes back in power and glory. But when He comes, He comes for all the people of God. Not just the dead, or not excluding the dead. All the people of God shall meet Him, shall rise, be called up into the air, the dead in Christ first, and then those who are still alive at His coming. And again, look at the wording of that. Paul's so interesting there because it does seem like Paul has an expectation that he'll be alive at the return of Christ. I think there's nothing wrong with that, right? We all ought to hope that we'll be alive at the return of Christ. How glorious would it be that it's today, that he would come back in glory and power today? Paul is excited about it. And Paul says, and thus we shall ever be with the Lord. Now think about that promise. We will forever remain with Christ, with the Lord, in glory. Now that is an amazing source of hope and expectation. If they need hope and expectation, Paul says, here's where it is. Not in an easy earthly life. You're not promised that. Not in no trials or tribulations. You're not promised that. But what you are promised is that through it all, you have an abiding hope and expectation that Christ will reign forevermore. And that in that, He will return for His people victoriously. Now why does this matter? I guess if you're comfortable in your life, it it may not seem as pressing to you as if you're not. If you're a believer in China, you're not able to meet as we are today. You're allowed to meet sometimes in sanctioned churches, which regulate your doctrine and theology. Or maybe you're in a country that has completely banned Christianity. My friends, the thought that Christ might return today is a great hope to you. But my friends, what's exciting is to know that for that believer, no matter what their predicament is, no matter what situation they're in, they can know Christ is returning in power for His people. That's more than just a passing interest to you if you are under great persecution. If you're going through struggles and you realize that Christ will return and we will be called up to meet Him in the air, what a glorious thing that is. We've heard this terminology so much as Christians, most of us who have grown up in church and been in church for even decades. We hear these passages and we don't think about the honor of it. Can you imagine if an earthly king or a a president of the United States or whoever it might be would say, I'm coming to your town, I want you to meet me, and I want you to walk in with me. Imagine the honor that is. In the ancient world, this is what happened. As Caesar came to a town, that was the use of the word parousia most times, was Caesar's appearing in a town. If you were part of the city's elders or committee of politarchs, you went out and met him at the edge of city and walked in with him. You may remember as Paul goes to Rome at the end of Acts, As he is approaching Rome, some of the believers from Rome came out and met Paul and walked into town with him. What that says is, I couldn't wait. right? I wanted to be there to walk with you. I love you, brother. I want to be there with you. I want to to enter with you. And here we're being given the honor, if you will, of meeting Christ in the air. Sort of a welcoming committee for the King of kings and the Lord of lords. My friends, that is exciting. That ought to excite us. I want to close by saying that The hope, expectation, and promise is equally ours. We don't know if Christ is coming back today or tomorrow or next week. We have no idea. But if we 
trust in Christ, if we are His, then this is a promise for us. A promise for us. Now, that's not what I say. It's what the Word of God says. Look at verse, if you will, 14. Right after Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren. Uh, I, d- I don't want you to grieve. I don't want you to, uh, to miss out on the promise or uh, to think that somehow those who have died in Christ have missed out on hope. And I certainly don't want you to behave like those outside the church who have no hope. Look at what he says in verse 14. For if, conditional statement, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Now, he's not talking about if you can just say, I believe two statements of fact in a factual way. He means if you believe that in your heart, if you put your trust in it, if you put your trust in the person and work of Christ, Paul says what? Even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. If you trust in Christ, if you believe that he is who he said he is, he accomplished what he said he did, if you believe that he's the son of God who conquered death and hell, rose again, died for your sins, Paul says this promise is for you. This is your promise. It's not just a promise for the Thessalonians 2,000 years ago. It's a promise for those in North John City Baptist Church 2,000 years later. And so, my friends, if we recognize that, we've got one question left to ask this morning. Do we believe that? Do we trust in Christ? Do we believe His promises? Do we recognize that He is the only one in whom we have an expectation of hope? That it's only in Christ that we are made a promise like this. That all those, whether living or dead, if they are in Christ when He returns, we will be called up to meet Him in glory and thus will ever be with our great and glorious King Jesus. My friends, that is a hope worthy of celebrating this morning. Amen.